You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Alex, for doing that reading and others for doing the reading. Uh, My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Darabin Prezi, if I've not met you before. Uh, I have a bit of a vision impairment, uh, and so if you're here and you're visiting, I'd love to meet you after church, but I might not be able to spot that you're a visitor or that you're checking out church for the first time. Uh, So if you're so bold, uh, it'd be great if you'd come up and say hi. I'd love to connect with you. Uh, It'd be really good if you have John chapter 19 open. Uh, We're mainly focusing on verses 16 to 42 in uh, my talk this morning, Uh, so please have that open. And there is an outline of my sermon uh, that you might find useful. Uh, It's on the welcome card that Alicia mentioned earlier. Uh, You can find it via the Sundays tab on our church website, darabinpc.com.au. Let's pray before we look at this passage. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to gather on this Good Friday morning. Uh, Please, by the power of your word and your spirit, please open our eyes to see the full wonder of what Christ has done for us in giving his life for us on the cross. Uh, We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if this thought has ever crossed your mind before, but... I wonder why so many Christians wear an ancient symbol of execution around their neck. Ask yourself that question. A Roman cross around their neck. It would be a bit strange today, for example, like in Australia, we don't 
currently have a practice of capital punishment, but in other parts of the world they do, and so perhaps some people might get excited about getting a little electric chair around their neck. They go down to the local jeweller and pick one up. Or maybe a little uh, kind of lethal injection syringe, perhaps. Just a little bit of jewellery to wear when you go out on the town. Like, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Why is it that so many Christians wear an ancient symbol of execution around their neck? And more than that, why do uh, Christians sing songs that praise Jesus for dying on a cross? Why do we pray prayers that thank Jesus for dying on a cross? Why have we got a ritual that we'll observe on Easter Sunday where we remember Jesus' body broken and blood shed on the cross? Why don't we have this annual day, Good Friday, as a part of Easter where we we remember Jesus giving his life on the cross? Why is it that for Christians... The cross of Jesus is so central and life-transforming, so meaningful. That's the question we're exploring today from John chapter 19. And we're going to do that by asking three big questions of the passage. That means we may not address every detail of the passage. It's quite a long one. But the three questions are, first, how did Jesus die? Second, why did Jesus die? And third, what does Jesus offer us this Easter? How did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? And what does Jesus offer us? So let's take a look first at that first question, how exactly did Jesus die? You might have noticed as the different parts of the passage were read that there's a repeated phrase in the passage. Several times when different things happen, John says this happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. We see it if you scan through the passage in verse 24, in verse 28, in verse 36, and in verse 37, quite a few times. This happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. We'll take a look in particular at verses 23 and 24. So if you want to look at verse 23, I'll read from there what John says. He says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. Uh, With the undergarment remaining, uh, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, the soldiers said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And then notice what John says. He says, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. The scripture that said, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So John tells us that the soldiers responsible for crucifying Jesus uh, strip off his outer garments, uh, but then they get uh, and they divide those outer garments amongst themselves into four different shares, uh, but then they get to the undergarment and then they're a bit stumped as to what to do because it's woven into one single piece and they can't just kind of tear it apart evenly into four shares with their bare hands. Uh, So instead they decide to cast lots for it, to kind of gamble for it. It's incredibly humiliating for Jesus, isn't it? Here he is being stripped off in front of all of these people, having people gamble for his clothes. It really does seem that in this situation, Jesus has absolutely no control at all. He's powerless. And yet John's perspective is different, isn't it? He says this happened 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is all part of God's plan, John says. And the scripture in this instance of the dividing up of clothes and casting of lots, uh, you might see in the footnote of your passage, uh, is Psalm 22, verse 18. Uh, Psalm 22 is a psalm that was originally written about the suffering of King David. Uh, But here John's saying it actually, uh, David's suffering actually points us towards Jesus' suffering. Uh, Jesus, if you like, is the ultimate David, the ultimate king of God's people, the Messiah, God's chosen and anointed king. So just as David could write about a time when he was stripped of his clothes by his enemies and his enemies cast lots before him, so also Jesus is stripped of his clothes by his enemies and his enemies cast lots before him. And all of this is a part of God's plan, John says. All of this is happening that the scriptures might be fulfilled. This is how Jesus died, according to God's plan, according to the scriptures. Which raises the question, why was it a part of God's plan for Jesus to die on a cross? Why did Jesus die? And from all sorts of different angles in John chapter 19, John's kind of central answer to that is that Jesus died as our substitute. Uh, Maybe uh, we don't use that. Maybe uh, if you're at school, uh, in my day, they used to talk about having a substitute teacher. That's the teacher who came in place of your regular teacher. Or if you uh, are into sports, The substitute always comes on in place of the player who's on the field or on the court. In the same way, upon the cross, Jesus is our substitute. Jesus dies in our place. And we see this wonderful truth. I hope you're convinced that it's a wonderful truth by the end of the talk. This wonderful truth that Jesus is our substitute in at least four main ways in this passage. So we're going to go through those four main ways. The first is in verses 16 to 22, where we see that Jesus is the King of God who dies to bear all of our shame. The King of God who dies to bear all of our shame. Take a look in verse 16. John says in verse 16, the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Of course, these soldiers were Roman soldiers, uh, Roman soldiers who were really experts in killing people. Right? It was kind of their job to coordinate executions. It's a pretty gruesome job to have. And they also knew that it was part of their job to publicly insult and shame and humiliate all of those people who had been condemned to be crucified. Oh, so that's what these soldiers have done. Uh, We read earlier from verses 1 and 2. If you scan back to verses 1 and 2, you'll see uh, that Jesus was publicly flogged. Uh, Incredibly brutal and painful punishment. It would have lost lots of blood. And then uh, these Roman soldiers publicly uh, kind of diss, mock Jesus' claim to be king by putting a crown of thorns on his head by clothing him in a purple robe. The whole process of crucifixion was designed to publicly humiliate and shame those being killed. The same is true of Jesus. And now it's time for Jesus to be actually taken out or to walk out to the place where he's going to be crucified. So in verse 17, John says, carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull, 
uh, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, some of you might be familiar with uh, what the other gospel writers say, uh, and they, you might remember that they say that uh, a man named Simon of Cyrene carried Jesus' cross. Do you remember that? Uh, so why is it that John says at the start of verse 17 uh, that Jesus carried his own cross? How do we put these things together? There's no mention of Simon. Now, probably the most likely answer to that is that Jesus, as we've just heard, has been publicly flogged. He would have already been quite weak and tired, having lost all that blood and just the sheer kind of exhaustion of that. So the most likely scenario is that Jesus was able to carry the beam of his cross for a short time. And then he collapsed to the ground and the Roman soldiers asked Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross. But John wants to emphasise the fact that Jesus did actually carry his own cross for this short time because he wants us to see that because of Jesus' great love for us and because of Jesus' commitment and humble submission to God his Father, he willingly carried his own cross. Even for this short time, that's important for John. Jesus was not manipulated into carrying the cross or coerced or forced. He willingly carried his own cross. So in verse 18, John tells us uh, that the soldiers crucified Jesus. Notice how brief that is. Uh, all the gospel, none of the gospel writers are really interested in unpacking the pain of the crucifixion. Uh, the pain in, in all of the gospel accounts is, is actually in the background. What the gospel writers want us to see is the significance of Jesus' death, not how painful it was. So just in a few words, the soldiers crucified Jesus. And with him two others, John says, one on either side and Jesus in the middle. Throughout his gospel, John has regularly looked back and referenced the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament and this is another kind of allusion to that. He's not quoting from it directly, but in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, Isaiah said that one day God's suffering servant king would be numbered with the transgressors, would be counted as being among those who have sinned. And that's exactly what's happened here. Jesus, the one who was without sin, uh, the one who was innocent, the one who'd committed no crime at all, uh, is being crucified among these two criminals. He's being counted as a sinner. It's an incredibly shameful position for Jesus to be in, for Jesus to willingly assume. So in verse 19, John says, a Pilate had a notice, uh, had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was Roman custom that when they had condemned someone to be executed, they would write the crimes that they had committed on a little kind of wooden board of some kind and hang it around their neck. The criminals condemned for crucifixion had to walk through the streets, the crowds lining the streets, hurling insults at them in accordance with the crimes that hung around their neck. And that's what happened for Jesus. 
When he got to the uh, when he got to the place of the crucifixion, the soldiers took that off his neck and fastened it to the cross. And the crime that Pilate says Jesus committed, or that he missed, is that Jesus is the King of the Jews. You can imagine uh, that the Jewish leaders who, as recently as verses 14 and 15, had completely rejected the idea that Jesus was their king, you can imagine that the Jewish leaders aren't very happy about that. And that's what we see in verses 20 to 22. First, in verse 20, uh, many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. You see, Pilate really, really wants every Jew to be able to see this sign. Uh, Jesus is crucified near the city, so the sign is clearly visible. And and every Jew would at least be able to speak one of these three languages, Aramaic, Latin and Greek, or read these three languages. The point is, every Jew would have understood what Pilate had written as Jesus' crime. Certainly the chief priests did. So in verse 31 we see uh, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. Don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, uh, I have written. Now, if you remember uh, Adam's sermon from last Sunday, or you can go back and listen to that, Uh, on the first part of John 19, uh, you might remember that Pilate doesn't say this because he's actually come to believe that Jesus is king of the Jews. He says it because the Jewish leaders, these chief priests, uh, had kind of publicly humiliated him. They'd sort of trapped him into having Jesus crucified, even though he really didn't think Jesus had done anything worthy of crucifixion. Uh, But these Jewish leaders threatened to go over his head to Caesar to tell Caesar, hey, hey, you know, Pilate, he's not crucifying this guy who's disturbing the political peace, who's going to overthrow your, who's threatening your rule. And so Pilate, having been publicly humiliated by these Jewish leaders, wants this sign to be up there, the king of the Jews. He wants to get back at those Jewish leaders. That's why he says, what I have written, I have written. Of course, there is a certain irony in the sign that Pilate puts up because Jesus actually is the king of the Jews. And as God's king, the Messiah, the one who has come into the world to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, as God's king, what does Jesus deserve? He deserves to be treated with honour. And yet here, he willingly embraces our shame. And the reason Jesus does that is that he knows that he has come as a substitute. Uh, When I was playing soccer as a kid uh, growing up, uh, sometimes, uh, for whatever reason, we didn't have enough team shirts uh, for everyone on the field and the substitutes to have shirts. You know, we kind of had like the 11 shirts. Uh, And so if you're a substitute, uh, you sort of had to run onto the field and, and quickly change shirts with the person coming off. And you had to do that no matter how dirty the player's shirt was. So sometimes you'd be running on, there'd be grass stains on their shirt, they'd be a real sweater, you know, they'd be like mud because they'd gone sliding in the mud. But as the substitute, you put on that shirt. And that's what Jesus does at the cross. Spiritually speaking, he is clothed in our dirty clothes. 
our mud-stained clothes, our grass-streaked clothes, our sweaty clothes. He puts it on and he dies on the cross that by faith in him we might be clothed in his honour, his holiness, his purity. Jesus is the King of God who dies to bear all our shame. That's the first idea. Second, Jesus is the Lamb of God who dies to take away our sins. I take a look in verse 28. Uh, John says in verse 28, later, uh, knowing everything, excuse me, knowing that everything had now been finished uh, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, uh, and then uh, the sponge, uh, they put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. There's lots of little details in John 19. Uh, why is it that John tells us that this sponge is lifted up to Jesus' lips on the stalk of a hyssop plant? Like, it doesn't really seem that central. Why is that important? I think it's because John wants to take us back to a particular story in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, In Exodus chapter 12, you can read the story later on, uh, God tells his people, the people of Israel, uh, that the time has come for him to deliver his final judgment, his final plague upon the people of Egypt. And the people of Egypt, under the leadership of Pharaoh, their king, who have repeatedly rejected God and repeatedly mistreated God's people. And tragically, God's final judgment upon the Egyptians is that the firstborn son in every Egyptian house will die. How is it that God's people living in Egypt are going to escape this judgment? How is God's destroying angel going to know the difference between the Israelite homes and the Egyptian homes? Well, in Exodus chapter 12, verses 22 and 23, God tells every uh, Israelite household to sacrifice a lamb. And then he tells them to take the blood of that lamb uh, and dip into the blood a hyssop plant and to spread that blood over their door frames. And God assures his people Uh, that when his judgment comes through the land of Egypt, his judgment will pass over their homes uh, because that lamb was sacrificed in their place. The lamb died as a substitute, at least a substitute for their firstborn son. You see, John referring here to this hyssop plant being lifted up to Jesus as he dies... He's letting us know something about who Jesus is. He's saying Jesus is like the ultimate Passover lamb. We all know that a little lamb can't really act as a substitute for a human being. That's not a fitting substitute. But Jesus, as God in the flesh, the word made flesh, the one who is truly God and truly man, Jesus can die as our substitute. So as John said, back in chapter 1, verse 39, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is reinforced in verse 33. If you look at verse 33 to 36, you'll see that the Roman soldiers come around to break the legs of those hanging on the cross, but when they get to Jesus, they don't have to break his legs. 
And in verse 36, John says, uh, these things happened uh, so that, again, the scriptures might be fulfilled. Uh, Not one of his bones would be broken. Why is that significant? I'm sure we're all kind of tuned into the fact that uh, dying by crucifixion was a pretty brutal and painful way to die. But it was also very slow. And in fact, people who were dying, uh, who were crucified, almost always died by choking to death. Uh, To be able to breathe on the cross, you had to lift yourself up with your arms somehow to open up your lungs or push yourselves up with your, push yourself up with your feet. Often there was a little wooden block on the cross that enabled you to do that. And so it would often take quite some time for the person being crucified to die. Eventually to choke to death as from sheer exhaustion they could no longer lift themselves up. And now we see in verse 31 that the Jewish leaders wanted to speed up the process, right? They didn't want these bodies hanging around on the crosses during the Sabbath. So they asked Pilate to send his soldiers around to break the legs of the three people up on the cross that they might die. But when they got to Jesus, they discovered that they didn't have to break his legs because he was already dead. Why is that important? It's important, John says, uh, because it fulfills a particular scripture. The scripture that he quotes, uh, Exodus 12 verse 46, at the end of verse 36. It's a scripture that stipulates that the Passover lamb has to be a lamb without any defect. It has to be perfect. It has to be without blemish. And therefore, not one of its bones can be broken. You see what John's telling us again about Jesus. Jesus is the unblemished Passover lamb. Not one of his bones was broken. Jesus is the only person ever who's lived a completely unblemished life, a life without any sin at all. And yet here he is dying for our sins as the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. A third, Jesus is the rock of God who bears the judgment that we deserve. If you take a look at verse 34, uh, you'll see that uh, the soldiers, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side and again, there's this interesting kind of observation from John that not just blood came out, but water came out from Jesus' side too. Why did John mention this? We'll come back to it in a bit, but one reason why John mentions it is because of another story in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is really in John's mind. In Exodus chapter 17, the people of Israel have been set free from Egypt. Now they're wandering through the wilderness, a dry and arid place. They get very thirsty. They can't find an easy source of water. And so they grumble and complain against God. In response to their complaints, God, through Moses, tells the people of Israel to gather in front of a particular rock. And God says to Moses, I'm going to stand on that rock or in front of that rock. It's a bit hard to translate exactly what God's saying. But it's very clear that he's going to be on the rock, near the rock. And then God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to take out your staff. That's his rod, his staff that he would have used to punish those who had broken God's law in the community of God's people. 
God says to Moses, take out your staff and strike the rock where I'm standing. What's God saying? He's saying, I'm willing to be a substitute for my people. I'm willing to bear the judgment that they deserve for their sin. I'm willing to be struck in their place for their sins. And so Moses strikes the rock and water comes gushing out. Water that brings life and satisfaction to God's people that they don't deserve. Now you might say, well, that's a bit of a stretch to say that that points towards Jesus. But the Apostle Paul didn't think so. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3, uh, Paul explains that that, uh, spiritually speaking, that rock in the wilderness was Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3, uh, Paul says, All our spiritual ancestors, that's the Israelites, ate the same spiritual food uh, and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drink from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. So just as all the Passover lambs sacrificed throughout Jewish history are pointed towards Jesus, the ultimate lamb of God, so also this rock in the wilderness points towards Jesus, who Paul says is the ultimate rock of God. Because on the cross, Jesus was struck in our place. Bearing the judgment that we deserve, just as God in the wilderness bore the judgment that the Israelites deserved. And just as water came gushing out from the rock in the wilderness, so also water flows from Jesus' side. Water that symbolises the life and satisfaction that comes to anyone who would believe in Jesus. Jesus is the rock of God who takes the judgment that we deserve. And fourth, uh, Jesus is the ransom of God who pays our debts to set us free. Take a look in verse 30 there. Are these fairly famous words. Right before Jesus dies, he cries out from the cross, it is finished. Uh, you might have heard before that those words, it is finished, uh, carry the kind of idea that every, uh, every obligation has been met, you could say, or, or maybe even every debt has been paid. Everything is done. It's complete. You see, Jesus knows that, spiritually speaking, all of us are massively in debt to God. Every time we sin, we reject God, we complain against God, we run away from God, uh, a little bit of debt is added to our account. Uh, for those of you who are accountants or business-minded, maybe this illustration works for you, right? A little bit of debt's added to the account. And lots of us are really aware of that. And so we spend our whole lives not just trying to pay off our mortgage or uh, to pay off our hex debt, uh, but also to pay off our spiritual debts. You know, we go to church, we try really hard to be a good person. Uh, you're going to go home today and give to the Good Friday Appeal because that's what you do, right? You read your Bible, you pray, you sing songs, all in a kind of desperate attempt to work off the debts that weigh you down and the sense that you're in debt to God and you just hope that by the end of your life you might have at least evened out the books with God. Maybe you'll even be in surplus, you know. Of course, the problem with that is the debt that we owe God is so big that we can never pay it back ourselves, at least not by trying really hard to be a good person. 
Because the debt that we owe God for rejecting him, the source of all life, is death. That's what we owe God. We owe him our lives. God was clear about that. Even as far back as Genesis chapter 2, he said to Adam and Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will surely die. That's the debt for rejecting God. And so isn't it wonderful news that from the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. What's he saying? He's saying every debt has been paid. I have died the death that humanity deserves to die. I have paid it in full. It is done. It is complete. It is finished. Jesus is the ransom of God who pays our debts to set us free. Why is it that Jesus died on the cross? John's answer is that he died as our substitute. He died in our place. He died to bear the judgment that we deserve so that we might receive, if we believe in him, new life and satisfaction that we don't deserve. Which brings us to the third question, what does Jesus offer us? Let's go back to verse 28 where Jesus says, I am thirsty. Obviously the people around him presumed that he was talking about his physical thirst. They got the wine vinegar on the sponge, which I'm sure floated Jesus' boat. I don't know who drinks wine vinegar, but there you go. Uh, But actually, I think Jesus is mainly talking about his spiritual thirst. Notice the connections here. We hear Jesus saying, I am thirsty. Then we see his side being pierced and water flowing from his side. With those two things together, you might remember, if you've been journeying through John's Gospel with us, an invitation that Jesus gave in John chapter 7 from verse 37. He said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, uh, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, Jesus meant the, uh, the spirit whom those who believe in him would later receive. But this is what Jesus offers us at Easter. On Good Friday, what does Jesus offer? He offers us the new life and satisfaction that comes from believing in him, that comes from receiving the gift of his spirit, the new life and satisfaction that is symbolized in this water that flows from Jesus' side. You see, in our sin, uh, what is it that we do? All of us reject God. That's the heart of sin. It's about a relationship with God. We reject God, who often in the Bible is called the spring of living water. Because we think that more life and satisfaction can be found apart from God. In a successful career, or in money, or in having a comfortable life, or in getting the approval of others, or earning a particular status, or whatever it is. Uh, These are the things that we desperately drink to try and bring life and satisfaction. But the consequence of rejecting God, uh, the source of all life, ultimate life and satisfaction, is that we're spiritually thirsty now and that we deserve to be spiritually thirsty forever, separated from God forever. So again, it's wonderful news that on the cross, Jesus says, I am thirsty He's not just asking for a drink. He's saying that I am bearing the spiritual thirst that you deserve for rejecting God. 
I am being, in this moment, cut off from full intimacy and loving connection with God, my Father, for your sake, that you might experience life and satisfaction that you don't deserve. Uh, Back in John chapter 3, Jesus had a conversation with a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus. You might remember he tells Nicodemus that uh, if he wants to be a part of God's kingdom, uh, he must experience this new life that comes by the power of God's spirit. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And notice John chapter 19, verse 39. Who pops up again here at the end of John's gospel? It's Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who's playing an important role with Joseph in burying Jesus' body. It seems that Nicodemus eventually received what Jesus was offering. He believed in Jesus and he received this new life and satisfaction that Jesus offered him. I wonder if this Easter you're like Nicodemus. I wonder if you believe in Jesus. I wonder if you've tasted and seen this new life and satisfaction that comes from believing in Jesus. Have you believed that Jesus is the King of God who died on the cross to bear all of your shame? And that he's the Lamb of God who died on the cross to take away your sins? And that he's the rock of God who was struck by the rod of God's justice in your place on the cross? Do you believe that Jesus is the ultimate ransom of God who pays off all your spiritual debts on the cross to set you free? If you believe this, the promise of John chapter 19 is that life and satisfaction is yours in Christ. The living water that flowed from Jesus' side can bring life and satisfaction to your soul. And let me tell you, if you're someone who has experienced the new life and satisfaction that comes from knowing Christ, uh, the life and satisfaction that you know only comes because Jesus was willing to die as your substitute on the cross, that might even make you, it might even tempt you to wear an ancient symbol of execution around your neck. I don't know if that's why everyone, every Christian wears a cross around their neck. But I hope it's why some of them do. Because they're convinced that it's by Jesus' death on the cross in their place that they have found life and satisfaction. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today uh, to remember and uh, reflect upon the uh, significance and life-transforming nature of the death of Jesus, your Son. We pray, Father, that we might be deeply convinced that Jesus did indeed die in our place for our sins on the cross, bearing the punishment that we deserve, that we might receive life and satisfaction that we don't deserve. In his name we pray. Amen.